Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfelt. We continue our series in the Book of Romans today, Lifestyle of the Gospel, with a message entitled Welcoming the Week. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One of the great warfare passages in the Bible is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. You know, that's the passage that commands believers to put on the whole armor of God. That passage describes the Christian life as a pitched, take-no-prisoners battle against the cosmic powers of the darkness of this present evil age. Christians are all locked in spiritual battle. But then, lest we misunderstand this language, Ephesians 6.12 adds, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's to say, we don't take the warfare language into human relationships. We're locked in battle against demons. We're locked in battle against philosophical ideals set up against the gospel of Christ. We're locked in battle against the seductive enticements of our own flesh. That's the warfare. But we're not locked in battle against people. And that's also true when it comes to our own enemies. It is true, says Paul, that the day of judgment is coming. All evil acts will be judged and condemned. And and that's God's business, not ours. Ours is to love our enemies and not fight against flesh and blood. That's an important thing to say. We're in a study of Romans 12 to 16 called the lifestyle of the gospel. And we've been talking about everything that constitutes a lifestyle. Everything from a life that's committed to to Christian community, that is, a commitment to our local church, to a life that forgives our enemies, to a life that submits to the governing authorities of the state, that is, wherever possible. And then finally, we're talking about a life of warfare that, that leaves no provision for the flesh and the enticement of the sensual life. But as we've noted, Warfare language that is in the New Testament, warfare language is never applied to a belligerent attitude towards people. I can't emphasize that enough because, as we know, local churches are often the place of warfare. Sometimes warfare in the local church has not only caused great wounds and bitterness among us, but our witness to the watching world is all but destroyed. When we fight each other, when we do wrong against each other, when, when we lie to each other, when, when we refuse to prefer one another, when Christian virtue dies in the local church, we lose our ability to declare the gospel to the world. But internal fights and quarrels are not unique among Christians. You know that. Nations go to war against nations. Furthermore, many is the family where, where brothers and sisters no longer speak to each other. Battles regarding vision or direction in the workplace can lead to people getting fired. And in other situations, the workplace becomes a caustic environment where gossip and slander ruin people's careers. And and all that's to say, it's, it's not just in the church where we find warfare. Fallen human beings are fractious. We wound and hurt each other. Let me illustrate how quickly the human race rushes to conflict and warfare. You know, Kathy and I have been to the Holy Land on numerous occasions, and and I hasten to add, the Holy Land is safe, to the most part. But on occasion, we saw tensions in the Middle East up close and personal. Once while we were in Jerusalem, marveling at rediscovering the roots of our faith, a disagreement broke out in the wider culture. 
A group of ultra-Orthodox Jews had brought a large rock. It was a symbolic cornerstone of the Jewish temple, and they laid it down on the site of the Temple Mount just in front of the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque that now occupies that spot. And that highlighted the dispute over who owns the site of the Temple Mount. Well, that action, this laying down of a stone, didn't lead to a discussion. It didn't lead to an attempt to articulate various positions. It actually led to a riot among Muslims who wanted to protect their holy site. Well, that riot spilled into the streets of Jerusalem, invoking a response by the military, which involved riot gear and percussion grenades and tear gas and helicopters circling overhead. And, and I should add, and tensions didn't lead to much in the end, that riot was quickly quelled. But that incident reminded me that the flashpoint of tensions in the world is always in Jerusalem. The city of peace is anything but that. And indeed, it's, it's always a city of tensions. The Bible teaches that in the end, the tensions around Jerusalem will lead to a great end time battle in which all the nations of the world will gather in the valley of Megiddo, or as it is known, Armageddon. And there they will fight against God. You know, many have wondered what solutions can possibly be found to ease this seemingly hopeless tension, this animosity, this mistrust between Jews and Palestinians living in the Holy Land. And, and I must add here that I still do contend that it's safer to go to Israel than a great deal of sites in North America. See what I'm saying? There are a lot of tensions everywhere. And furthermore, I've walked the streets of Jerusalem on multiple occasions, and I have felt safe. But the problems in Jerusalem is a parable of our problems in the world. It is theology, history, personal experience. All of these pit people against each other and they become mortal enemies. How can common ground be found? Is, is there an answer? Well, yes, the answer is Christ. According to Ephesians 2 verse 14, Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. Well, you might say, that's highly theoretical. How does that work? Well, it does. And since I've been talking about Israel, let me share another story. Once in Bethlehem, I met an elder who was a part of a leadership team in a Palestinian Christian church. We shared our stories of knowing Christ together. He shared with me a medical problem that he was struggling with, and, and I laid hands on him and prayed for his healing. Well, we hugged each other and called each other brothers. But it was the one thing that he said that I'll never forget. He said, you're visiting many holy sites here and will no doubt run into many Jews. Let the Lord direct you, he said, but would you tell someone that there's a Palestinian Christian shopkeeper in Bethlehem who, because of Christ, loves the Jewish people? And as he said it, I remember thinking what a, what a lovely thing that was to say, especially in a part of the world where that's not often found. What a lovely thing that is to say and what a lovely thing to feel in one's heart. Well, two days later, we were in Galilee, and I met a retired colonel in the Israeli Defense Force. He was a recent born-again Christian, and as he told me of his faith in Christ and how he had come to know Jesus as his Messiah and Lord, I told him about this Palestinian Christian and, and what he had said. Well, this colonel hugged me, and, and he asked me for his name, and he said, I want to meet him and tell him that I'm a Jewish Christian living in Galilee and that I love him and I love the Palestinian people. See, that's the only hope for the divided world. All the negotiations in the world will not solve anything unless love abounds and love from the heart is not possible until Christ breaks down barriers of hostility. 
we've been discussing the lifestyle of the gospel. And today we'll find that Paul believes that the relationship between Jews and Gentiles are a part of the essence of gospel living. As he says in Ephesians, Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And here is the issue. The Roman Christian church of the first century was made up of Jews and Gentiles. It seems likely to me that the first converts to Christ in the city of Rome were probably among the Jewish people. I mean, after all, that was the New Testament pattern. The gospel was preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But then Gentiles also came to know Christ, and they formed into one body. But after a period of time, as we've already seen in this study, the emperor Claudius expelled all Jews from Rome. And so for a given period of time, the the Roman church was led by Gentiles only. And then again, after some period of time, the Jews were allowed to return to Rome and to their homes, and for Christian Jews, they came back to their church. And you can only imagine that in order to reintegrate these two people groups, Jews and Gentiles into one church, two very diverse groups of people into one church, well, some work needed to be done. So when I read Romans 14, 1 to 4, I I can't help but reflect on that unique situation that had transpired in Rome. So now we're ready. Let's read the text. Romans 14, 1 to 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. I hope you catch the struggle. It has to do with two very difficult issues between these two groups. The first has to do with kosher foods, and the second is the section that follows, and it has to do with observance of Sabbath. How is it possible for Jews and Gentiles to be in one church when food and Sabbath divide them so deeply? Romans 14 tells us how. For many reasons, this has been a challenging year, but a year where God has once again proven himself faithful in providing for the needs of this ministry and have allowed Back to the Bible Canada to not only sustain our Bible teaching and engagement efforts, but to expand those efforts through new mediums and into new locations across Canada and in fact around the world. Your faithfulness has made this ministry possible. And our prayer is that you will continue to stand with us in support of this ministry for 2022. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's word and a trust in kingdom work. The ministry target this year is to raise $490,000 during the month of December. This is a significant goal, but a necessary one. So please join us in this effort by sending your year-end gift by midnight of December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I have begun to point out that in Romans 14, it deals with 
two very fundamental differences between ethnically Roman Christians and ethnically Jewish Christians, both living in Rome, both attending the same church. The second issue, the one we will deal with in my next message, is the issue of the Sabbath. But the first issue, the one we're dealing with today, is the issue of kosher foods. The reason I'm allowing for one full sermon on the Sabbath issue is because I'm fairly convinced that there is a very real application of that issue to our lives today. You know, too often in our day, among contemporary Christians, the matter of Sabbath is viewed as a relic of the past and it's no longer applicable. And furthermore, since there is so little teaching on the matter of the Lord's day, I think that it is appropriate to dedicate one sermon to that issue. But for today, let's concentrate on the matter of kosher foods and what that means for us. Here's what I learned from this passage. It's one thing to express love between Jew and Gentile, and that's fine. I love the Jewish people, I love the Gentile people, but put them into the same church as was done in the first century and let them live together for a period of time and soon they will discover very real differences, differences that would need to be resolved. So let's start with the beginning. Look again at verse one. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Please notice how crystal clear the apostles' theology is. The person who is held fast by the rules of kosher food, that Jewish brother is the weaker brother. I'll explain that in just a little while, but at this point, take note of that important statement. Nonetheless, those weaker brothers are also a part of the local church in Rome. And before we look at the details of this passage, I want you to notice those two words. Welcome him. You know, those words are directed, I think, primarily to the Gentile believers. Now, that same phrase, welcome him, gets repeated in the last five words of verse 3. Notice the words. For God has welcomed him. That's essential. It's not just that the weaker brother is a problem and somehow I have to decide what to do with him. No, no. Notice the powerful assertion, God has welcomed him. That means full inclusion of this brother. God brought this brother into your church. So before we dive into the details, let's spend some time on that word, welcome. Now, that word is used in Philemon verse 17, where Paul tells Philemon to accept back his runaway slave and says, welcome him. Don't berate him. Don't make him feel guilty. Instead, run to meet him. Throw your arms around him. Receive him with joy. That word means accept that person. Don't reject him. Don't judge that person. Welcome is a very powerful word. The point is this. Jewish believers had some difficulty with some of the Christian teaching. Remember that in Mark 7, Jesus had pronounced all foods clean. And that's especially difficult for Jewish believers. I mean, after all, a very long section in the book of Leviticus deals with what you're allowed to eat and what you're not. What you ate marked you as a person of God. You as a Jew would have been trained in this from birth. You might also remember Daniel 1, where the young Daniel, prisoner of war in Babylon, puts his life on the line because he refuses to eat the king's food, which would have been non-kosher. The tradition at every single meal was that it is dedicated to God, and kosher food reminded you that you ate to the glory of God. 
Now, the teaching of Jesus that he had made all foods clean was difficult for Jewish Christians. So, for instance, Peter himself had so much trouble with this. Remember in Acts 10, God had to show him a vision of unclean food and said, take Peter, kill and eat. And then God had to show him the same vision another two times. He had to because Peter would never have thought about ministering to Gentiles if God had not made it explicit to him. The very kosher food that was so precious to Peter was preventing him from crossing the barrier and ministering to Gentiles. And yet even after that, Peter still stumbled along with prejudice against Gentiles. According to Paul in Galatians 2, Paul had to rebuke Peter sharply because he was withdrawing from the Gentiles again because they were not kosher. See, the idea that kosher food was no longer required was simply so controversial. I think that most of us who are Gentiles simply can't comprehend how how visceral, how gut-level, how filled with guilt feelings was this matter of eating non-kosher food. And so many Gentile Christians would look at Jewish Christians and, and they would simply condemn them for not understanding the freedom of the gospel. And instead of that response, Paul says, don't judge them, welcome them. Now, what I'm about to say next is very important. As long as a Christian Jew attaches no saving merit to eating kosher, They should be tolerated and accepted and welcomed. But if they think that kosher food makes God obligated to bless them, they must be corrected. See, God does not command a Jew to abandon a kosher diet. And if God doesn't demand it, neither should we. Now, it is true that some Christian Jews were poorly trained, and others were being swayed by the heresy of the Judaizers. And that's to say, they didn't fully understand the gospel of grace. They didn't see how radical it was that we are saved by grace through faith alone. But even though they didn't truly understand all the implications of the gospel, they were born again. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And says Paul, Christians must resolutely refuse to argue over these non-essentials. You know, there are some things that we hold with an open hand and some things that we defend with a closed fist. Part of maturing as a believer is to know what things we defend with our lives and what things we allow to remain a matter of conscience. That salvation comes to us not by works but by faith alone, we must defend that at all costs. But some people have not fully grasped how broad and wide and freeing the gospel is. And these people must be dealt with with consideration and grace. Why? Because we trust that a part of the Christian experience is that we slowly grow in our faith. Look again at verses 2 and 3. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So please understand that the Jews were not vegetarians. They ate meat, but they had to make sure that the meat was properly examined by Jewish religious leaders and be confirmed as acceptable. And because that was not possible at that time in Rome, Many Jewish Christians thought that in order to be safe, they would eat only vegetables. 
Now, a Gentile Christian might say, hey, don't you know? Christ has pronounced all foods clean. Loosen up. Let me show you how wrong you are. And to this, Paul responds, don't you do that. Don't alienate people over non-essentials. Look at verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. See, in the ancient world, the height of arrogance was to come between a master and his servant. Such behavior would have been considered outrageous and would have been deeply resented. And in the same way, notice the last part of verse 4. Do you believe that? Now, I should point out here that the Judaizers were the exact opposite of what Paul was describing. The Judaizers were condemning the Gentile Christians because they thought they were uncircumcised pork eaters and unacceptable before God, and that was a heresy. But this was different. This was a struggle over weak brothers who did not have the freedom that other believers had. And says Paul, this matter of what you eat is not an essential matter. If the church of Jesus Christ is going to be a place of unity, love, and respect, we're going to have to welcome people who are weak and have not yet grown to become mature, who struggle with things that the rest of us don't struggle with, and who will feel that the church is a place where they can struggle safely. They won't be condemned. They won't be treated as second-class citizens. Instead, they will be welcomed. May God give us grace to show the world that which they can't find anywhere else, a place where weak people find a welcome home. John, I think what's coming clear from what you're saying here and something we've talked about before is we need to understand what is essential. Yeah, what's essential and what is not. And by the way, I have found, Ben, that a lot of the struggles that we have in the local church are over non-essential items. And it just seems, I don't know why, but it seems so often that a non-essential item will just pit believer against believer and we just give each other no quarter and, uh, you know, how much harm has been done. And, And I hear Paul's words in here, welcome him for God has welcomed him so strongly. And I think we need to take them to heart. It would be, you know, incorrect for us to to say that we can, you know, that we can solve all of our theological difficulties. But isn't it amazing? On most of the large theological issues, so many Christians agree with each other, not disagree. How important it is to note that. Thank you so much, John. And remember, we're going to be concluding this series, The Lifestyle of the Gospel, in the first two weeks of January of 2022. This is Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As Christmas is upon us, my thoughts of the Holy Land are magnified. I begin to reflect upon the stories of Jesus' birth, life, sacrifice, and ultimate glorification more closely. And in so doing, my anticipation of the upcoming 2022 Israel experience grows. There we walk the paths and places that bring the stories of the Bible to life. As time draws close, we invite you to join us for this adventure April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-A-Gains Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back of the Bible Canada team. 
For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca slash events.